Hi, this is Susie, and with me in the studio today is Southern Cross Faculty of Business, Law and Arts lecturer, Dr. Jean Renouf. Jean is an academic, firefighter, and a father. Jean has an incredible life story, which has seen him work in war zones and natural disasters around the world, to landing here with us at Southern Cross University and living on the Northern Rivers. Jean, I feel personally really lucky. When I started my degree, you were the first lecturer I encountered at Southern Cross in a foundational unit called Written Communications. I remember feeling blown away listening to you talking about your first degree, studying law in Russian in Paris. Just quickly, how many languages do you speak? <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me here today. Um, it's a pleasure really to be talking to this podcast and an honor to be invited by a student to speak about, you know, what we do. So thank you. So how many languages do I speak? I guess it depends how you define speak. <laughs> but I would say three fluently, two okay, and one basic. So five or six. Can you tell us what they are? Yeah. Um, so French, obviously, English and Spanish fluently, Russian and Polish uh, good enough, and Arabic basic. A bit more than the average Australian then. Mm -hmm. um, so how did your academic journey evolve? Uh, so I started studying a double degree, bachelor degree of law and Russian in Russian law. In France, the system is a bit different in Australia. And we have a system, what is called Grand École, which is literally it means big schools, but it is like s some sort of um, elite, I guess, institutions. And I, I got accepted in one of these, so I, I continued my master degree there in um, in international studies. And because I'd realized also I didn't want to actually work as a lawyer. I loved human rights and international law, but that's it. Um, so I moved on more into political science and international relations, which I was absolutely passionate about. And then after that, I started working. And a few years down the line, I realized now I really want to delve deeper into my studies and especially develop my intellectual rigor and my intellectual thinking. So I en enrolled in a PhD degree at the London School of Economics in the UK and did it for six years part-time, which I yeah really enjoyed. I was one of these lucky few students who remained passionate about the topic till the end. How would you define your expertise now? Hmm, <laughs> great question. So... It is definitely uh, my area of interest remains international studies at large. I have throughout my academic research specialized um, into climate change and the impacts of climate change to human societies in particular, so countries, but also local communities. And it, it is an evolution of my previous research, uh, but remains very much focused on how do we manage to live safely while remain ethical. Your most recent paper, published in January this year, Making Sense of Climate Change, the Lived Experience of Experts, provides the findings of a research project which investigated the lived experience of climate scientists and climate change experts to understand how they make sense of climate change. Can you tell us a little more about the sample group your research is based upon? Yes, of course. For this particular article, I interviewed 16 climate scientists and climate change experts from 13 different countries. So most interviews were done online via Zoom. 
but if you face to face and um the idea for the research was to have a diversity of views from different expertise but also different locations to have a better sense of exactly how the title of the article says it like how do experts make sense of this massive thing that is climate change yeah you state in your paper that few researchers have examined climate experts perceptions of climate change let alone the meanings and implications for themselves and their families what prompted you to take on the research great question so i think it's um it's a mix of different things, but essentially it boils down to climate change is a very complex topic. It's a multifaceted topic, interdisciplinary in nature, extremely hard to comprehend because, you know, we're talking about stuff that happened millions of years ago that affect us now and that what we are doing here now as a society will affect the planet for millions of years. So it's, it's extremely complex topic to really wrap your head around and i was interested in the topic for, for multiple multiple decades now but never looked into it from an academic perspective per se and um the reason why i wanted to do and undertake this research is i was like okay i read the report i kind of understand the basic science behind it um but it's really complex still so for me to really grasp it to help me grasp it and in, in the process help my readers grasp it. I thought I'm going to ask straight those who produce the science, not about their work, but about how their knowledge of the science inform their life, their personal choices and that of their children and great children. In the hope that um, through listening to their personal stories and lived experience of climate change through the science, but also what happens outside of, of their work, I would have a better sense comprehend better really what's happening to us and where we're heading. I'm going to digress a little mm. here. My brother is a climate change denier. Oh, right. Quite okay. a passionate yeah. one. Yeah. How do you cope? There's there's a lot of them. Yes, of course. Well, first of all, like it's a, we are broad church, you know, like as humans, we have to accept diversity of perspectives and views. And uh, in my experience, when you listen to people respectfully, they sense it and it allows to build bridges. I have stopped trying to convince people because there's no way. But if there's a space for a, an intelligent, constructive discussion, even with someone who disagrees, then yes, let's have it. At the same time, my focus, my action is on accepting reality of it and making sure we can adapt to it fast enough. A recent report released by the UN shows governments are nowhere near reaching the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement of a decrease in emissions by 1.5%. Antonio Guterres is calling this a red alert for the planet. In your paper, you say that none of your participants believe the temperature increase will remain under 1.5%. In fact, some are expecting a 3% increase. It all sounds rather gloomy, or as you conclude, graph. Yeah, it's, and I think it is. So one of the questions I've asked them is what temperature, average temperature, um, sorry, let me rephrase it. What global average temperature increase do you expect us to reach by uh, 2100, so by the end of the century, and also by 2050? And according to the Paris Agreement that all countries on Earth has signed in 2015, our goal is to make sure that the global average temper temperature increase remains lesser than 1.5 degrees. Because we know that if our temperature increases more than that, the consequences will be greater on uh, our ecosystems, on our environments, on us. 
So we're trying to limit the increase. Unfortunately, for this to happen, we at large countries, institutions, corporations, individuals, we have to drastically and rapidly reduce our carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases. But we're not definitely not going fast enough, which means that the trajectory, if we continue as we are now, and this is what those scientists and experts have been telling me, is we will not limit the in temperature increase to 1.5 and probably not even 2 degrees. And this spells disasters. So this this is catastrophic. I mean, it, these are really simplistic ways of understanding climate change, but they're very helpful in that sense. So like there's like at 1.5 degrees, science scientists estimate we're going to be losing 60% of the coral reef, the Great Barrier Reef, you know. At two degrees, we're going to lose more than 90%. So this is like the reality of it. For every degree of increase, we'll have a 10% increase in dry storms that have created the bushfires, you know, uh, that we have gone through last year. So every half degree has tremendous consequence on, on our daily reality. And this is why we absolutely must collectively uh, make sure that the increase of emissions is as slow as possible and that we reverse the trend and go go back to decreasing it. But yes, you're correct. Unfortunately, the, the scientists don't believe that it is possible. So what I hear, the majority of them, and actually uh, what, what is what is not um, visible in this particular article, because I haven't published it yet, is the finding of another research they have done, which is much bigger, where I have surveyed close to cl thousand climate change scientists and experts from around the world, from 80 countries. And some of the questions I ask around this temperature one. And unfortunately, 52% of them believe that we're going to be reaching not by 2100, but 2050 in our lifetime, a temperature increase between two to four degrees. So if one understands the consequence of this, one understands that whoa, we really need to brace for impact. That's what it means. And it's, it's extremely um, hard, complex, deep to face it. But it does mean that re our life, the rest of our life, is going to be underpinned by climate change and climate crisis and what it means. And the world as we know it will be entirely restructured because of it. In your paper, the group's participants' answers fall into three themes. Those who made sense of climate change by referring to its impact on the planet and society. Those for whom climate change means taking action. And those who view climate change through the lens of the impacts on the lives of their children. Can you unpack those themes a little for yeah. us, please? Yeah, of course. So the, the purpose of this particular research was really to understand how do they make sense of it? Because it's so complex. How do they look at it? Like, how, how what do they think of when they think of climate change and, and kind of imagine it in their own head? You know, what does it mean to them? So these are all the questions I've asked them. And and indeed, uh, the trends I have noticed are those three. Those, so the, those who made sense of climate change by referring to its impact on the planet and society means that when they talk to you about climate change, they talk about, you know, the effects on um, access to food, for instance, or, you know, increase of heat impacting people's health and productivity. So really the effect that we feel personally, the impact on us as society. The second trend I had noticed are people who know this and are driven to action. So that's how that's how they, they make sense of climate change. Okay, what can I do? That it really boils down to this question, what can I do about it? And finally, the third one, those who view climate change through the lens of the impacts to the children and grandchildren. Because as we know, um, the, 
the impact will be much greater as the, the, the century unfolds. So our children and grandchildren will grow in this century and they're worried for this. And some of them have made choices such as moving country, like from one country to the next, because they know that the earth, while all of the planet is and will be affected, some places be, will be drastically more affected than others. So they have already make, made decisions to move to those places which will be less affected. This paper mentions three main concerns related to the impacts of climate change. What are these? So the first sort of in clima, uh, impacts, um, climate experts are, are concerned about the, our access to food and water. So water and food security, um, with a concern that there will be, um, with the increase of temperature, reduction of production of food and reduction of the nutritional value of food, which means that you need to eat more to have the same, basically, um, uh, needs met. Um, this, of course, will mean that not everyone will have access to food in this century. It means that we'll have to change our eating practices. Uh, the same applies for water. There's already water crisis around the planet. There's already a number of towns, including Australia, we've experienced this, you know, and the, the heat waves leading to the bushfire in 2009-2020, that many, many towns were really low on water stocks. And a lot of us were wondering, so what happens if that continues another six months or 12 months? What do we do? Mm. And these are real questions that we absolutely need to answer because it's going to happen. So the first concern was water access on water and, and foods. The second was... Um, the impact on ecosystem destruction. So I mentioned before the Great uh, Barrier Reef. We have seen you know, the, the billions of animals who were de destroyed during the bushfire. This is just an example of the extinction crisis that we are going through and which will be made worse by climate change, not only by climate change, but among other by climate change. And finally, the third one, the concern on human societies. So how do we, with this in mind, how do we remain um, social creatures who can live a decent life. So we live in societies, at least in the West and in Australia, which are, you know, very, very um, efficient at organizing us, you know, from transportation to health to education. Like we have this extraordinary system in place. But how can this system remain in place if this is what we're living, if we, when we live through this great unraveling? So what is the meaning of education, for instance, in times of climate change? What should we be teaching our students in times of climate change? These, and the same, what food should we grow in times of climate change? How should we, uh, what should be our relationship to water in times of climate change, to the natural environment, etc., etc.? So I think all aspects of society, including health, including work, including the meaning of life, should be reassessed through a prism of the climate crisis. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about what should we be teaching our children when you've got these disparate views mm. by the by the government of the day that mm. still believe in fossil fuels and coal. Yeah, it does my head in, hey? Mm. It, it is, it is. Um, but it, at the same time, it sheds some light, you know, to um, history. Like I remember growing up, for some reason, I was always interested in different wars and, and learn, learning about history of different conflicts. And I always wondered how on earth have we, have we, you know, produced a society which was capable of institutional genocide. And I'm, of course, thinking of the Nazi, you know, during the Second World War. Like, to me, this is the, the, the highlight of violence. It's organized institutional violence, not just cold-blooded, is, is me mechanically organized. And I find it absolutely astonishing and I could never really understand it. 
how do we reach this? I've read book about the motivation, books about the motivation, etc. So I, I have an intellectual understanding of it, but still, from a human perspective, I just could not. But now I can, because I see it happening now. Like, the fact that there are some people like our governments and others who just you know, don't want to see it because they have their own personal interests, because they're blinded by ideology, by fear, by greed, by power, um, makes makes it much more easily to understand why we have failed so many times in the past and why some civilizations have collapsed. Now it makes sense, like, oh yeah, right, people were already like this, that's it, you know, we already had these blindness and and short-term thinking, you know, so mm. nothing surprising here, you know. Yeah, I often mm. wonder about the dinner conversation Scott Morrison might have with his young daughters mm. about the future and climate change and Australia's reaction to the crisis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, a, a, an interesting point which I was pondering about these past few days is the Murdoch family, you know. You may have heard last year that, you know, one of the son has resigned from mm. the board of the different Murdoch media in protest, essentially, to um, the line, the editorial line that uh, Murdoch media is taking, which is kind of it's essentially contributing to denial of climate change. And I can hardly imagine, you know, uh, how difficult it would be, you know, for him and everybody in his situation to confront, you know, the rest of their family uh, when there are such strong disagreements about it. Yeah, as I imagine that, I don't know, at the same time, Scott Morrison being the prime minister, power, so being in power, I think, changes people's perception of themselves and of life. So I can't really answer that question. Mm. Towards the end of your paper, Jean, you discuss hope. How do you feel? Do we have reason to have hope? Yes, we do. We do, actually, despite it all. So, I mean, there's the answers that I can provide you and the answers that the climate experts have provided me. I'm going to first focus on the latter. So what was interesting, though, is that when I asked them, you know, what gave you hope? I had to ask the question to many of them because many of them would not necessarily spontaneously tell me that they were hopeful. But once I asked them, then I realized, oh, yeah, no, no, there's hope because... And then what would come up was essentially the the increasing awareness of the youth. And I was saying, finally, you know, some people are going to, some people get it and will make the change necessary. Um, so all all the, you know, climate strike for action, um, all the movement led by Greta Thunberg, and you, in general, the, the youth uh, movement throughout the planet were bringing a lot of hope to climate uh, experts second aspect was technologies so they did not necessarily believe that technologies would reverse the impact of climate change but at least would slow the effect of climate change giving us more time to develop technologies that we don't know of yet that would allow us hopefully uh, to reverse some of its impact there was also like hope based on on sheer um, belief that we as a species are extremely indigenous. I mean, we have conquered the Everest, we have conquered the ocean, we have conquered um, Antarctica, Arctica, the moon, you know, and our Mars. Like, we are a species of adventure and conquerors. And when we put our energy into solving a problem, we really can ach achieve a lot of a lot of things much quicker than we do. And the case in point is, at the moment, the development of renewable energy is far, far faster than we had anticipated. So, although on the one hand, you know, our lived experience of climate change is increasing and we see the effect of it, at the same time, the response to it, in a way, is also increasing. 
And that led a number of the interviewees uh, asked the question to tell me that they, ex they, they felt there was um, a really an, an unexpected, much, much quicker adaptation to it that, than they thought there would be. And I believe that in 10 years time, uh, our society will be indeed organized vastly differently because of it or thanks to it. Mm. So yes, it's a it's it's a chaotic you know century, and there'll be lots of ups and downs. But it doesn't mean that we've lost the the, the, the battle yet. In your paper, mm. you mentioned a couple of times, I think, about a Fijian scientist mm -hmm. that you've interviewed. Are you getting that sense of hope from somebody on the ground uh, in Fiji that are so exposed? to the immediate effects of climate change? Yes and no. I think it re some as some of them have told me, it depends when you ask, which day of the week you ask mm. me. So some day they are really feeling dreadfully low. Others, other day, they're feeling much, much better. So I suspect the answer would be the same in the case of that particular lady who indeed uh, lives and works in Fiji. On the, I know she was telling me in vivid details how climate change is affecting their way of life, traditional way of life, everything from fishing to growing food to interacting one with each other, relation with the elders, everything. To uh, And it was more seen through the prism of, of concern and negativity, but also at the same time, the sense that actually we are doing something and the change is not all bad. And actually we are adapting, you know, not necessarily the way we had planned, but we actually are adapting. So, yeah, I guess it depends which day of the week, you know, you ask <laughs> them. But for sure... Western countries, because we have more resources, more institutions, even though we'll be affected as every uh, as every other country on earth, we will have much greater capacity to adapt. And I think we have to engage because we're humans, because we're one species, and because of our own interest, we have to make sure that other countries survive too and people survive too. Quoting from your paper again, John. The present research asked how those at the forefront of climate knowledge make sense of climate change, given their professional knowledge. I would like to throw that question back to you now. How are you personally making sense of climate change? I really look at it through a prism of my children. So I have two boys, four, four and a half and two years old. Not four, he would insist that it's four and a half. <laughs> so four and a half and two. And... Um, when you know scientists speak and in, in when you read the United Nations and other reports, you know the 2100 date or 2050, I really think of it through the age. I'm picturing, oh, how will they be? Oh, that wow, they'll be. It's not that far away. And I don't know how old you are, Susie, but I guess you probably remember the time where the Berlin Wall fell, right, and the and and Soviet Union crumbled. So in these early 90s, it feels like it's not that far away, but we're now closer to 2050 than we are to 1990. So That's a really good example, because I remember being in school and I taught German at school mm -hmm. and being told that the Berlin Wall will never fall <laughs> exactly. by a German right. teacher. Amazing. So, yeah. That's a great example. Yeah, it it really puts it into context. I make sense through through understanding, you know, what it means to them. So the temperature will increase. Increasing um, large parts of the planet will become uninhabitable, which will lead to massive migrations, some peaceful, some violent, which will lead to massive politicizations in different countries, like we have seen in, in the US lately, but not only in Brazil, etc. 
uh, which will see which will lead to massive changes in our economic system in the way we work in the way we live in the way we produce and in and consume um and and some will be very gradual and will you won't notice it through the introduction of new technologies that will adopt others will be more forceful and will just have to adapt because there'll be no choice but yeah it will be a um i think <laughs> put it bluntly remaining flexible will be a key asset this century i think hmm. so that's perhaps you know one thing i'm i'm looking at with my children is make sure they they're able to remain flexible. Yeah, I guess we all learned that lesson last year. Those that pivoted well exactly. um, you know, exactly. had the most success. So exactly. this is the first stage of your research project. What comes next? So what comes next is, is an, another few articles. Like um, this research project was really the introductory part of a larger research subject where, as I said before, I, I surveyed close to a thousand climate change experts from, from on the planet. And while with this first research project I got some stories, some narratives, what I'm what I got from the second, but I haven't finished writing about it, is the data. So those views shared by those scientists I have interviewed, how widespread are they or not? So this is the kind of question mm -hmm. I looked into and unfortunately they are very widespread. Um so yeah, that's the next stage and, and hopefully leading to uh, reconceptualization of what it means to be secure and safe especially for communities and I'm very much interested by the concept of ethical security so when I was working as an international aid worker uh, so I worked you know, in different war zones and 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 and, and complex environments and um, we as aid workers were frequently the victims of targets so were killed kidnapped you know raped looted whatever so we had to protect ourselves but at the same time because of who we are because and because of our ethos we just could not protect ourselves the way military or police does it so for to start with we didn't want any weapon we didn't want to have to carry flag jacket or you know military helmets so how on earth do you operate live work and and go in the street basically every day in a country where you know you're being shot at so we collectively, and that was part of my PhD then, but we collectively came up with a system, a way of thinking of, of designing security, which does not rely so much on stuff than more on, on human connections. So it was literally, and I've done that many times in my life, talking to the bad guys and connecting with them and making sure we can, uh, we, understand, we have an excellent and very detailed and refined understanding of the environments where we live so that we understand the, the dynamics, we understand where a potential threat could come from, or if something happened, who we have to talk to to repair it, et cetera, et cetera. So this ethical approach to security that we we have worked on as aid um, workers, I like to kind of open up to community. So how do we in country like Australia, but also in other countries, uh, when institutions will be fragile and you know we may um, have some, some sort of um, disorders social disorder how can remain safe in a way which is not unethical which which remains you no know, focus on on our core humanity and so this moves us to a project that you're conducting outside of the university at the moment um can you tell us about resilient byron yes of course so resin byron is a charity which i founded uh, 2019 <laughs> i love because actually we remember a conversation i had with a with a friend of mine um 
I was telling him about it and he loved it and he was part of the making it happen. And that was a few weeks before the bushfires. And um, at first his reaction was, oh, but how are we going to get people on board? What we need is a crisis. <laughs> and of course, two weeks later, we had the bushfire crisis starting and then we had the COVID and economic crisis. So it was pretty prevalent. It, or, let's say it was, it became rapidly um, visible why resident barn was necessary. So the purpose of resident barn is to uh, transform the barn shire and the northern rivers at large to make it truly uh, resilient through regeneration. Effectively, what we aim to do is in the short term to help us, members of the community, normal people, adapt and prepare for the next waves of disaster, be them, you know, economic crisis or flooding or heat wave whatever uh, and then in the longer term to change the way we live so look at our food system water system housing system health system etc and change them so that in t instead of depleting our environment and depleting us and we reinforce it we create abundance and we effectively build a resilient system um, so for this we have two ways of doing it we organize uh, or let's say we, s we help resident so we help residents organize themselves in neighborhood supergroups so neighbors you know not only checking and caring for their neighbors but transforming the neighborhood based on that supported by residents who come together around different themes so we call them the the, the thematic groups and those themes are food security water security housing security energy security health and well-being and disaster risk and we so we have volunteers in each of these groups um, and experts essentially in these areas and people who are passionate about these topics who support neighbors or people creating neighborhood supergroups to improve their neighborhoods on food, water, energy, etc. Do you see this as a pilot that could be used elsewhere in Australia? Yes, absolutely. And actually, we've applied for funding to extend expand dram dramatically. At the moment, we have 15 neighborhoods. Um, uh, registered with us um, we have applied for funding to to roll it out throughout the whole northern river so we'll see ah good luck sounds wonderful thank you and finally i'm interested in hearing your take on 2020 as a fireman you would have been involved in the worst bushfire season on record in new south wales and then covid came along and disrupted everything really turning life as we know it upside down what are your thoughts on last year it was a big year and I think and actually this is something we're considering doing at Resident Barn is to just acknowledge it. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be anxious and, and, and tired and, and stressed and exhausted because we'd had so much to take on our, on our shoulders, you know. We cannot pretend that we're returning to normal. And in fact, we shouldn't because normal is what led, led us to this crisis in the first place. The system is unsustainable. So first, let's acknowledge that it's okay not to be okay. Let's be supportive of each other. Let's reach out to each other. Let's um, listen to each other and, and develop authentic communication with each other. And then together, let's change the system so that we make sure that we never return to normal. I thought of you often in COVID, and it was funny. It went 
right back to that first lecture and you were talking about the university experience and saying that when I was sitting in class with you three years ago that we were perhaps going to be the last generation of students having a university like this and it'll all be online and it'll be so different and I'm sitting there going yeah sure how are you going to break down <laughs> this sort of institution um, but within my time at university it happened very quickly. Yes it has and it changes will continue I think with climate change artificial intelligence and new technologies are the two really determinants of our lives and um, education will be will be will as we have seen already go through these changes and perhaps just to to come back to your question about 2020 I think as a, as a as a teacher I'd like to acknowledge that it's been extremely difficult for my students to learn in 2020 because the headspace was not necessarily you know in the content of the units which is fair enough so I hope with 2021 that you know we kind of all have uh, accepted that this is neurology and we can somehow focus on um, learning how to grow again. I sort of felt like in 2020, the, the live lectures, I had one with you or the tutorials, they were like a lifeboat for mm. me to connect and mm. feel part of something. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And same for me. I mean, I'm never happier than when I'm in my classroom, actually. So and, and it was frustrating to do it all online, you know, but at least we had this. Know, and especially for the during the first session with those students whom I had met in class just before we were kicked out of campus because of COVID, um, we were able to continue having this this rich relationship despite being online. So that was really really pleasant, but much harder for students enrolled in second and third sessions because they did not necessarily had this first physical contact with the you know lectures or tutors. So really hard, absolutely. Thank you, John. It's been such a pleasure and, and so so interesting to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susie. <laughs>